Please join me now uh, reading responsively and affirming the upside-down kingdom of God from the Beatitudes, which are found in Matthew 5, 3 through 11. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, you may be too close to it. You may be too familiar with it. In fact, I might suppose that you might even be inoculated to our Christianized, because of our Christianized culture, to realize that these simple statements of Jesus that we just read together were and continue to be the most disruptive message ever given. When these words landed on those who were there listening, I think it came with a little bit of a shock. There are times in history where a message capsulizes kind of a cultural shift. Words that are spoken maybe like at a military cemetery four score and seven years ago. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty. We have no trouble imagining this culture-transforming message, something that's touched many of our lives not too long ago. I have a dream that someday my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Or this challenge spoken by President Ronald Reagan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Let's think about earth-shaking messages that I heard even as a child, and there was one that kind of rocked my world. Mirs eats oats and does eats oats, and little lambs eat ivy. A kid will eat ivy too, wouldn't you? And I say that because I was with my mom this week, my mom and my dad, and I saw my mom, and that little song came up into my mind for some reason, because as a little five-year-old, I didn't have any idea what she was saying. Right? How many remember that song? And uh, the reason I remember it, too, is because when she sang it, she had just this joy on her face. And it made me smile. It impacted my little world. Because words have power. They can shift things. And this message that Jesus delivered on a hillside was so disruptive then, and it continues to be for anyone who dares to live these words in their heart. Karl Marx wrote a little manifesto called the Communist Manifesto, and in it, that little manuscript 
on class struggle infected the heart of a man named Lenin and the working class such that they overturned a Russian kingdom and the czars that had been in power for many years. That same little manuscript and its ideology deeply influenced a young man whose name was Mao. And eventually those words helped set the stage for Mao's cultural revolution. We had our own, in our own history, people who were infected by words and they wrote an independence declaration. And those words shaped and formed a whole nation and has impacted nations, turned some upside down. But these words spoken by Jesus to his followers could actually be called his Christian manifesto, his declaration of what it means to be a person who lives under the blessing of God. And he says those things because he wants all of us, you, any, any person here, to experience that. And it's not a verbal declaration that resulted in some kind of military revolution is what they were expecting in that day. It was a, a declaration, a statement of truth, of reality that resulted in a character change that so changed an individual and a family and a community that it began to turn upside the world and its systems. They're so disruptive, these words, are that they overthrow the kingdom of the world wherever and whenever anyone dares to take it seriously. I've called this series disruptive because that's what the Beatitudes really are. You see, you have the Beatitudes, and then you have the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But these Beatitudes kind of set the stage. And they're words that actually change not only the system of the world, but the system of all religions around the world. It turns the existing order upside down. It is a message that is completely countercultural. It is a message that if you choose to be the kind of person who lives blessed of God because of what he does in your heart and the attitude he forms, as you begin to walk with him and you turn, you turn actually against the grain of culture. The influence of these words in Western civilization can hardly be measured. The influence of his life, Jesus, who lived these words. Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, try and say that name a couple times. This Yale historian writes, regardless of what anyone may think personally or believe about Jesus of Nazareth, he has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. And if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out every scrap of metal throughout history, bearing at least the trace of his name, how much would be left? You see, we live in a world where Jesus' impact is so immense that even if his name goes unmentioned, it has some influence in it. H.G. Wells, some of you remember him and remember the War of the Worlds, that radio program that disrupted a whole nation. He says, as he, he, he marveled that after two millennia, and here's his quote, a historian like myself, says Wells, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this man because the historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? 
By this test, says Wells, Jesus stands first. H.E. Wells, don't even call me a Christian, says that Jesus has no peer. Whether Aristotle or Augustine, Napoleon or Churchill, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, no one has had the influence like Jesus. I actually got this idea disruptive for this series from one of our attenders in our church, Jeff Evanson, who works for Tesla, so he kind of works in, you know, he travels all over, but he works for that company in the West Coast, which makes electric cars, which have been transforming kind of the automotive world. He spoke at one of our men's breakfasts, and he gave a short explanation about what's happening with that, and he used this idea of disruptive technology, which got my mind thinking, and so I wasn't with him for the rest of the time, but I was thinking about this. It's what business leaders and economic theorists actually call disruptive technology or disruptive innovation. And a disruptive innovation, so pay attention, is an innovation that helps create a new market and value network and eventually disrupts, disrupts an existing market and value network over a few years or decades, displacing an earlier technology. Now that's a mouthful, let me just give you some illustrations. Take like the digital camera when that was made. And that's, right away, film becomes somewhat unnecessary. And all the camera companies are struggling to figure out, okay, let's make digital cameras. Before they know it, they've made these digital cameras and someone comes up with this incredible idea, let's just put the camera on a phone. Now only camera nerds will need a camera, right? Those of you who like cameras, I'm sorry. But anyway... And that has actually crushed some industries. Kodak suffers greatly from that. Or take today, look at Time magazine. Some of you may be you know, reading some of the things that are happening. You have something like Uber. Familiar with Uber? Airbnb. I have daughters. That's why I'm familiar with this stuff. The rest of you. And other companies. Of what has happened through the internet, through what we call now the sharing economy, this idea that through the internet, you, I have something that you want, instead of you going to have to buy it the way things are, I'll just borrow your car when I'm in a city. And it's wreaked havoc on some industries and is changing those industries, such as the taxis and hotels. And this is happening in lots of areas. And the government's struggling to come up with ideas of regulation around that. And as I thought about this, I thought, man, Jesus stood up. And he spoke a message called the Beatitudes. And he lived a life that disrupted the whole culture of his day, the whole religious system of that world that they were living in and the religious systems in the world forever. And I thought about it. Think of what the, the book of Hebrews, for instance. Hebrews is kind of the manual of Jesus' disruptive innovation. Here Jesus comes along. And you think about the whole Old Testament industry is in a sense made obsolete and put out of business. Jesus comes along and he becomes our high priest. He becomes the ultimate sacrifice. He becomes the new temple and creates a place within our hearts where we can have a temple and changes the game completely. There's no need no longer for you to have a priest or to go to a high priest, to go to Jerusalem, 
to actually go to a temple site. Everything has changed now because you, because of what Jesus has done, has put you in a position because of his sacrifice where you can 24-7 be in relationship with Jesus. And it wasn't soon after that where God just kind of said, as the people, the Jews, continued to resist, and those who would not go into the new move of where the Spirit of God was taking it through Jesus, he just brought in Rome, and he just decimated that purposely to help people let go of it. Because that industry wasn't working anymore. It was never to be the industry in God's economy. I get really excited about this, can you tell? In a few statements... Merely nine verses. Jesus had changed the approach to God. Nine times Jesus calls a certain group of people blessed. People who are not seen in that day as having the blessing of God upon them, probably no different than our day. Who do we think are really blessed? Well, obviously the CEO and, and the people who have the money, but he says, no, the poor. He kind of says, no, he's a guy who's mourning, who's, who's experiencing sorrow. He, he talks about the meekly weak. He speaks about people who are really hungry and thirsty all the time. He speaks about people who are being persecuted. And he says, these are the people who have these kind of attitudes in their heart that are blessed. Who wants to be there? Jesus begins, here's my first point. By calling the people to himself who will be different. Now that's longer than most of my first points, and you have to understand that I was at a theology conference this week, and so when I go to those things, I usually end up with longer title or longer points. And I was actually thinking my first point of something like the paucity of evidence for the superlapsarianism of the ecumenical consuls of the patristic era. Be grateful we didn't go there. We're just talking simply that the Beatitudes call people to himself who are different than the world around them and its existing values. You begin in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1 and 2, and he says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I want you to pay attention to these words, mountainside, sat down. His disciples began to teach the mountainside was really a hillside with a plain, so to speak. It was really the hill country that was around Lake Galilee, that western kind of edge, that northwestern kind of edge, where it was a region that was quiet and private, and in, in, they called it the mountainside. And it was up on that side that Jesus took a group of disciples. And, and we kind of think, well, maybe it was his 12. Or really, it could have been 80 to 100. It was people early in his ministry that he was calling around to himself. And he was calling them to himself. And he says, here, I'm going to give you my Christian manifesto. And the reason I say this is because Jesus is beginning to teach. And it's not an aorist verb that's used there. That means he taught one time up on the mountainside. It's the idea this was his common teaching or his teaching that he did again and again. And what really makes this important to understand is that he sat down. You see, a rabbi, when he would just be teaching, would often just teach along the way. They would walk along, and they would stroll along, and he would give them some wisdom and advice, and they would follow as close to his heels as they could. They felt it was a good thing to have the dust of the rabbi on them. But when he wanted to actually sit them down, he would, and it says, began to teach, he would lecture and, 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 and even in the Jewish time, as well as in the Greek culture, in the history of that day and age, and even throughout history, 
We talk about a professor sitting down so that in, in, in universities, the professor has a chair. And if you're really someone who's generous, you might buy for a university a chair that they can use for posterity, which is a way to be able to fund a position, but it's around a chair because the professor would sit on a chair. And the Pope will speak ex cathedra, which means he speaks as God in a sense in the Catholic faith. And the word ex cathedra, we, we may think of cathedral, but it means to, to actually speak from the chair or from where he's seated. This is official teaching. And what I think is interesting when he says again and again he taught this, this is in Matthew placed here and in Luke placed a little later. And you kind of go, well, where is it supposed to be? And we get all hung up and go, oh, the Bible must not be correct because Matthew sees it this way, Luke sees it. No, he was an itinerant preacher. And from time to time when he would do miracles and he'd, he'd be speaking to people, he'd call people and he would say, to those of you who want to learn more, who want to be a disciple, come with me to the after presentation. And he'd be like, it's for the people like you. You know, some people are going to hear this message and you're going to go home and others are going to go, I want to go to the business meeting. No, okay, just kidding. These are people who would hear the message and they didn't have to run home to get a potluck out of the oven or something like that. You know what I mean? Or they don't put pollocks in the oven, do you? Anyway. I don't know where I was going with that. But anyway. <laughs> here would be Jesus calling the people who are interested in being his close followers and he would say, if you want to, here's the manifesto. And he would probably do this again and again in different regions. And Matthew purposely uses these exact words because he's writing to Jews. And he wants these Jews to understand something. He also uses these words because they reflect well what Jesus himself intended when Jesus went up on the mountainside and when he began to take the chair to speak. He had an intention for the people in that day and also for the Jews who are reading this and for us today Jesus, in this sense, was the new Moses who is predicted in Deuteronomy, this new prophet to come. He's writing to the Jews as well as because he's saying he's not only this prophet high priest who has come, he's the king. And the king's going to give you a declaration of what it means to follow him, what it means to live a blessed life. So Jesus delivers his words, and those who have eyes to see... You know, when Jesus, you know, when you think about eyes to see, you know, Paul would pray for the eyes of your heart to be open and lightened. Jesus at time would give a message. He goes, so those of you who have ears to hear, hear. He, he wasn't concerned whether people had actual ears or not. He was concerned that people would hear the Spirit of God through the word spoken and it would be a revelation into their heart. You can be in church, you could be in church all your life and yet not have uh, ears to hear and eyes to see. You may have come for the first time today, and as I'm speaking, your heart is just kind of being moved because God is in the process. Maybe you've never known God in a personal way, and he's beginning to open the eyes of your heart and the ears of your heart that you might hear the revelation of this incredible love of God who is righteous and holy. I I kid around. I say, you can be in a church for years, just like I can stand in the garage for years and I'll never become a car. You can be in the church for years and not become one who is born again by the Spirit of God. And I say that because there may be some people who've been here a long time and you've gone through all this stuff, 
But God right now is beginning to prick your heart and saying, guess what? It's maybe not what you always thought it was. This upside-down kingdom is something that comes by the revelation of the Spirit of God into your heart. Well, similar to Moses, Jesus is calling out a people for himself who will be different, unique from the world people of God. Remember, I said different, not weird. We sometimes get this idea that in the church, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be weird. That's not what it's about. The entire theme of the Bible from the beginning to the end is about God's desire to call out from the world a people for himself. He is, a, he is calling us out from our culture to be holy, or the, as I said here, different. And, and I have to express to you, holy does not mean necessarily moral goodness. It has that within it. It's different than that. In the Old Testament, when it's used, the word holy means uniquely different. It'd be if you had five chairs put together and you just took one chair that was like the rest of them but put it way over here. It would be called holy. It was separated apart from. And what he's calling us to be holy, what he calls us to be holy, it's that we're to be separate apart from. We're so supposed to become holy like God. And I would use the word here, W-H-O-L-L-Y, which means we are becoming like God himself. So he sends Jesus so that we can see what God looks like. If you want to see a picture of God in flesh, Look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. Every way he reacts, everything he does, that's the heart of God. And what he's calling us to is no different than our mission. And I'm so in love with our mission. It is to, to take our next step to become and to know and to, be, and to follow and to become like Jesus. And he calls us to this place. He called Abraham out of the land of Ur to be holy. Hey, Abraham, take you and your family, get away from this land. I'm going to take you to a new land. Where are we going? I don't know. You're not going to tell you. I'll let you know when you get there. Some of you are in that process right now in your own life going, God, where are you taking me? But what's interesting is when he gets them there, he says, I don't want you to be like those people either. He needs to take them out of this because of, of all the stuff. Sometimes even in our own families of dysfunctions, he calls us out of it for a bit so we can see the dysfunction clearly so that we can begin to operate in a new way. But when we get into this new place, it's really easy to get into the same kind of dysfunctions. And so what he's saying, I don't want you to be there. I want you to be here, but I want you to be like that. And then a guy like Lot and his wife move to a city. They get close to a city. They begin to start to take in some of the values of that city and they're standing and they're near Sodom and, and they become enmeshed with that. And God says to him, I need to call him out. You get that? That's kind of what he's doing all the time. And then, and then you have the, Moses and the children of Israel. He calls them out of Egypt. Soon after God had rescued them from Egyptian slavery, and he calls them his special people. Listen to what he has to say. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you dwelt, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, for to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their ways, but you shall walk in my ways, the narrow way, because I am the Lord your God. God's always doing that. He's saying, be careful this direction, be careful this direction. The way that I want you to walk is in this way where you begin to open your heart and the revelation of God begins to speak to your heart and through the Holy Spirit and relationship to Jesus, glorifying God, you begin to walk with a sensitivity and, and it, it has something to do with your heart and you stay in this place because you can't go into some kind of motions and just activity in, in so much of the nominal churches over here and you can't be like the world. So how do you live these two things? And we think, well, if we can't be like the world, we've got to look weird. No. 
And that's what the Beatitudes are all about. And just think what happened. You know, Moses goes up to the mountain. He's not even up there hardly a short period of time, and people are getting their gold together and saying, hey, let's get our gold. Let's make a God we can see. This is kind of a tough thing. We're walking along. We just see a cloud fire. This isn't really crazy. We want to be like people around us. And before we get too proud, we do the same thing. God does stuff in our life, and we really like God. We love how God cares for us. We thank him for how he saved us. Like Joel said, he, we mess it up. We give it over to him, and before long, we start going, but you know, God, I really like my neighbor's car a lot. You know, I really like my boss's house. We go home and watch the Super Bowl, and every commercial that comes on, we go, wow, that would be nice to have. Israel, throughout every century which followed after Moses, kept forgetting their uniqueness as the people of God. And all I say of this is background to the Beatitudes, understanding that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that they are not to take their cue from the people around them, even the Pharisees, in a sense, especially not the religious righteous. But they are to take their cues from God and him alone. His word, this word, begun to be living in them would actually sanctify them and set them apart. These Beatitudes lived out would set them apart and God's rule and his kingdom blessing would be upon them and they would prove by what is going on and who they are, who they are, catch that, who they are, their identity, they would prove that they were the children of God because the blessing of God would be upon them. But the blessing of God would look different than what we think. The character of those who follow Jesus are to be completely distinct from that which is admired by the world. The world finds attractive the ritually, superficially happy people who use their power to manipulate whatever they are hungry and thirsty for through whatever impure motives and peacemaking methods they need to use so that they can be in control, popular, wealthy, and esteemed, even at the loss of their soul. And you know what? Many of us in the church are there. I'm tempted all the time. I'm tempted all the time to get off the, this narrow path where I'm led by the Spirit of God, humbled in my heart, seeking to hear, like even, you know, seeking to hear from you how God needs to shape me. Praying that you are seeking to hear how God's calling you to be shaped. So that we don't go back into manipulation and wanting to have power over and thinking that if we just do this, we can get our way and we can do that. And, and we live in this completely submitted place, not doing what the world does, not doing what the, what the church in the world in it does, but doing what God in us does. And in living in that place, we are blessed. Unlike the world, Jesus' followers are to love their enemies, do good to them, bless and speak well of them, and yes, even pray for them. Unlike the world around us, we are to pray with humble thoughtfulness, knowing when we're at work and things aren't going right, or we get, God still loves us, and we can smile because the Lord reigns. Unlike the world around us, where the primary preoccupation is around worry and about um, getting material possessions or putting all our energy into the next exotic excursion or finding ways not to be bored, not seeking to control and manipulate to get what we think we want, but we seek first God's rule, and then we enter into his adventurous story and say, how can I with you write the story of my life? Because we're to be different, not weird. 
We are to be different from both the nominal church and the secular world. We're to be different from both the religious and the irreligious. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that follows is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian who walks counter to culture. If those, and I call them being attitudes, because I don't like the word attitude, and I'll talk about that in a second. If those being attitudes are your life, you will be disruptive to both the lukewarm culture that permeates our landscape as well as to the godless world that lives all around us. And we will do so in such a way that it won't be self-righteous in any way. It will look like Jesus. Judgment will begin to fall from you because the judgment you use on others will be used against you. I won't go there. I've got a series in the summer that I wanted to use on that. Anyway. I want us to read these Beatitudes and pray this. So I'm going to ask you just to take a posture of prayer for just a second, okay? Because as I say these words, this would be my prayer for us. Jesus, place this heart in us which you describe as blessed. Jesus, let these attitudes be me so that you can be in me. Jesus, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. Not just on earth, but in me. So this world and all its values and networks are disrupted and redeemed for the glory of you, Father, in heaven. We want to be holy like you, Jesus, in every way. We want you, Holy Spirit, to show up in us in every way. We want you, Father God, to be glorified and blessed through us in every way, everywhere we go, everyone we meet. Amen. So that leads us to our second point, which is shorter now because I'm further away from that theology conference. Our difference is in our attitude. It's really simple. Called to be different, but our difference is in our attitude. I'm not really happy, as I said, with the word attitude, but um, it fits so well, though, with re- helping you remember be attitudes. And, and, and the word be before it is a sense of being. And these are attitudes that if you are born anew in this sense in God, they are attitudes that are given to you in seed form. But they're not attitudes that just, you know, we always think, well, I've become a believer, I've raised my hand, and God's saved me, and he's forgiven me all your sins. Yes, he has done that. And you know what? You no longer have to live in guilt. You don't need to live in fear. You're a child of God. you all those things. But it's the living it out. It's the walking that narrow road. It's that walking with God that you begin to become the kind of person where you let God into your heart through others and and helps you see who you are and helps you grow in him so that these attitudes can begin to permeate you because it's these attitudes that change your actions. The heart is different. What Jesus is getting here is that those who are different are different in the core of their being. And we so easily get this messed up. I just confuse it and I think you do as well. Jesus says, get these basic attitudes right, and right actions will follow. And in fact, another way to say it is pay attention to your heart, because everything you read in the gospel is about the heart. Pay attention to your heart, and your hands and feet and mouth and eyes and ears will quickly fall in line, because out of the overflow of your heart, what happens? Your mouth speaks. Sadly, we focus on what we do and don't. We make our relationship with God and others about a list of do's and don'ts and try it in a marriage. I've tried it. doesn't work. Because people want a heart, and from that heart, for every occasion, it will respond to the right action. That's what God wants. 
And it's so easy for the church to get looking into the things that you do and you don't. And the reason we do that is because if you can kind of say, I'm a person that does, and then every church lists its own little things of doing. If a church does that and you're not doing, you're not doing the don'ts, there we go. You can get kind of proud. Look at that, man, I'm doing the doings. Now, I'm not saying there aren't things that are in the Word of God. They're very clear things that you do and you don't do. But it's not about the doing and don't and the patting our back and somehow we find ourselves righteous in that. The narrow road is the fact that the only place we, find, place we find our righteousness is when Jesus and himself, it's not about what you believe or even what you behave. It's the fact that Jesus has regenerated you. His spirit has come and in that sense, your heart responds in faith and trust. Even that's a gift. I uh, read this book called The Forever Family. It's, I think, Christianity Today's Book of the Year in 2013. It's all about the Jesus People movement that began in the late 60s, mid-60s, and 70s. And it's a fascinating book, and I was reading it because I you know, was probably about in eighth grade when all that stuff was happening. And uh, I remember driving to church with my dad and my mom and, and my sister in the middle, five years younger, my brother, two years, he's over here, and, and myself here, because I remember this one time specifically. My brother, two years older, and he was about 10th grade, and he was in this place where he wanted to grow his hair a little longer. And we were driving to church, and they, or my dad and my brother were having a fight. Anybody ever have a fight on the way to church? <laughs> you know, isn't it wonderful? You come into church, and you're, hi, how you doing? And inside, you just are going, ugh. And they're having this fight, and it's all about whether the hair was on his ear or over his ear. And I'm thinking, this is incredibly silly as a kid. Because they would let me off, I'd get out of the car, I'd go into the church, I'd go down these stairs, which would go to my kind of 7th, 8th grade room, but passing it was the wall of fame. And the wall of fame were just the pastors of the past, and the elders of the past, and the leaders of the past, and as I'd walk by it, they were all like in the early 1900s. They had long hair and beards and mustaches. The very thing that the people of the church at that day were saying, oh, this is rotten. And I understand where it's coming from because they, they said, oh, this is a cultural revolution. These values are... And I just want to say to you, as a church, let's just get this straight. God is about the heart. I don't care if you come with a suit and tie and that's what makes you wonderful. And I don't care if you're wearing jeans and they're rolled up like this. It is not about your hair length, whether it's shaved here or whatever it is. It's about the heart. And we treat people like Jesus did because what's important in the gospel is the heart. Right? And that's a place that's safe for people who are different. I, I've read so much revival in history. And I remember reading back. Oh, I'm off the whole sermon right now. But anyway. <laughs> William Booth, who started the whole Salvation Army. Started leading people to Christ, drunks and alcoholics. He brought them to church after church, and every church rejected him because they didn't like their smell and they didn't like how they looked. And he had to start his own church, praise God. In every sense of revival, that happens. Whitfield, Wesley, they start preaching at, at the coal mines, and they're at the coal mines, and they're preaching. And the Anglican church kicks them out because they're not preaching in a, in a place, in a church, behind a pulpit. The difference is our heart, it's our attitude. In each of these verses, what we'll be looking at, Jesus says, blessed are the. Do you know, in the Greek, there isn't even a verb. Jesus spoke in the Aramaic, which was closely tied to the Hebrew. 
And when he would say these words, this is the way they'd actually sound. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Oh, the blessedness of those who mourn. Oh, the blessedness of the meek. This was really kind of wisdom literature that Jesus was using, which if you go back to Psalms, which is one of the wisdom books, Psalm 1-1 is the perfect example of this. It starts out this way. We don't translate it this way. We translate it, blessed are, because it makes more sense in our language, but it would be, oh, the blessedness of the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. Because the expression would have been very familiar to those who were listening to him, and the expression would actually read, and they would hear it this way, congratulations if you're poor. Now that sounds funny. In Matthew he says in spirit and we get that's better. Luke says just poor. Because there's a sense when you're poor, your circumstances create a sense of dependency that when you've got circumstances that are going your way, it doesn't create. That's kind of the point. Jesus is congratulating here as a Christian manifesto, not some actions that are different, but a condition of our heart that is different. It is a heart condition. It is a sustained being attitude. And if your heart is poor in spirit and lives that way day in and day out, it is a heart character that Jesus says, congratulations to this kind of heart, God will bless. And the difference that God has called us to is a difference in character that will result in different loving actions, which may be different in your eyes to someone else. And in some of those occasions we go, be careful, you do not judge. The Beatitudes express the character of the called out one in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. The Sermon on the Mount that follows reveals how those actions flow from those attitudes. So finally, here's our last point, and I'll try and do this with the minutes we have. Our different attitudes release blessing. That's what Jesus is saying. Now here we get to verse 3 of chapter 5. Oh, blessedness of the poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's how it works. You need to understand this word poor. There were two words in the Greek that would express poverty. One word would express the kind of poverty of a person who was working for a living and earned just a meager salary, salary just enough to subsist. They may need to even supplement that salary with food stamps. They just barely have enough resources to live on their own, maybe though they get a little help. The other word, which is the word that Jesus uses here, describes the person who has nothing. They're not just broke, but they will die if someone doesn't provide for them their next meal. They will die if they don't get the medicine they need to live. They will die if they don't get the shelter on a 40 degree below day to protect them. One person writes, the Greek word used here to translate the word poor that Jesus uses is a very severe word. It means absolutely and completely poor. This kind of poverty of spirit means that some frustration, fear, or failure has pressed us to realize that we are at the end of our resources, ingenuity, and clever answers. We are forced to recognize that we can change neither ourselves nor our circumstances without some kind of outside help. Are you there? Are you there? You may be there. 
It may be that literally in some ways in your life, in your marriage, it may be in your work situation, it may be in some other area of some character thing that's going on, an addiction that's going on, you're just there and you're going, and Jesus is going, blessed are you. All blessedness of you who are in that place, because guess what? When you come to the end of your resources, whether it's your wisdom, wit, and the understanding, and power, and strength, and money, when you come to the end of your resources, you are now, this is where it says, for theirs is the kingdom of God, you are placing yourself by the very sense of your desperation into the place where you begin to experience the resources of God, his love, his presence, his leading, his guiding. And it may take some time as you stay in there, but God is for you. That's what it means to be blessed. That's what it means for the kingdom of God to show up his rule, his life in you. And that's what this last little beatitude is. Congratulations, now yours is the kingdom of heaven. I just want to say, I just want to stop. I just sense, if you're there, I just ask you and invite you to open your heart and say, God, you see my heart. You know, it may be that you've come to the end because you recognize your sin has put you in a position where you know that you are on the judgment of God. And when you're in that place, I just say, wonderful, because now look up to God. He has mercy and grace through Jesus Christ for your soul. And just receive him. Or if it's in a place in your marriage, or if it's in a place with addiction, begin to open your heart and say, God, I now open myself up to you. I will do whatever it means for the outside help to come in to help me move to this next place. I was uh, traveling this week, and I had to go down to Trinity International University down in Florida, where I am a chairman for an advisory team that I had met with there. And so Tuesday morning, I have to get a flight early. My flight has to, I have to get that flight, otherwise I can't make the meeting. That night, I was going to stay over, catch a, uh, uh, take a taxi, get to the airport real early, fly to Trinity in Deerfield near Chicago for this theology conference for those three days. Well, I'm on my way to the airport. I'm 10 minutes out, and I feel my pocket, and I realize I don't have my wallet. No license, no credit card, no money, no cash. And I'm thinking to myself, what can I do? I don't even realize this. I thought, I'll park my car. You can't even park your car without a credit card. Unless you're really wealthy and can go to the valet thing and pay 100 million bucks later which since I'm so wealthy, that's what I did. <laughs> and so I'm there, I have nothing, but I did remember when I used to travel, I thought, you know, I want to put my passport in my, in my uh, briefcase just in case I'm ever in another city and I lose my license or it gets taken or something happens. So I have my passport, I can get on the plane, I'm making my way to get to the plane, and as I'm there, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? i got to call them down there. It's er- I, so I call, no one answers, I leave a message, please, would someone pick me up at the airport at X you know, amount of time? I'm going to be getting on the flight in a few minutes, you won't be able to contact me, I'm going to rely on you. I'm desperate. I mean, serious, I'm feeling desperate. I call my, my daughter, um, Kelsey, in Chicago, she's a great problem solver. I say, here's my problem, I don't have any credit cards, I don't have any license. I don't have any time to get it Tuesday. Wednesday, I come into Chicago O'Hara. Could you figure out what to do? I call my wife. I say, Grace, I don't have a credit card. I don't have a license. Would you somehow figure it out with Kelsey? Get, maybe I can get it somehow. I mean, here's what happened in this desperation. I experienced what I think God wants to experience. Humility. Incredible humility. I'm relying on everybody outside of me. I can't do a thing. And I, I'm even leaving on Wednesday morning and, and the COO hands me 10 single dollar bills. They go, no, no, no. And they go, no, take it. You'll probably need it. 
honest to God, my wife and my daughter had figured out to send the stuff, UPS, to O'Hara Hilton. I would walk up the plane, grab the, you know, pick up this package. I go to get the package. She says, I can't give it to you unless you have $2. Sure, I got two bucks. I go get my rental car. I'm able to make all the different meetings and do the stuff I needed to do. I learned this incredible lesson, and I think God put desperation, says Jesus, is a place of blessing. I experienced humility like I'd never experienced. I experienced gratefulness like I had never experienced. I had experienced, in a sense, a communication with God that I hadn't experienced for a while. You pray. On the plane, I'm praying. Jesus, think about it. He was so humble, he was constantly getting away to pray with his father. That's a disruptive life. And then I experienced hope. Folks, this whole first, this, this very first, all oh, the blessedness of being poor, it means the humble, who are desperate, who their being begins to start living in such a way, who a church, just church, if we became desperate, because we have. Many of us have been praying like crazy that God would show up and do something great in our midst. That's disruptive. 